0: The business of culture, the culture of business, markets, media and technology, music, Hollywood, authors, much more. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad.
1: You have to be able to have the capacity to change. And it's so hard because we are animals. We have animal spirits that are trying to run our minds and tell us, no, things are going to get back together. Things are going to get better again. We know the stock market's going to rally. We're going to be off to the races anytime soon. Or I would love that stock. I don't want to let go of it you have to lose the emotional attachment and calm your animal spirits as an investor. Otherwise, you're never gonna be able to really build wealth over the long term. Is this it?
0: Are swooning stock and bond markets at that long overdue reckoning for years of easy money? What is this surge in volatility telling us? Can the Fed engineer an economic soft landing? Stay tuned. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. A shout out to our broadcast partners, WVTF, Virginia Public Radio across the Commonwealth, WERA in Northern Virginia and much of Washington, D.C., WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina, and KPPQ out in Ventura, California. Holler if you too would like Full Disclosure on your air. Joining me from New York, the financial capital of the world, or at least the hemisphere, is Caleb Silver, editor-in-chief of Investopedia. He previously worked as the director of business news at CNN. He was executive producer at CNN Money and was a senior producer on the Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer in a past life we nearly crossed paths at Bloomberg. Uh, is this finally it? You know, what was that That what is that guy, Red Fox in uh, Sanford and Sons? like I-, I feel it. This is finally it. This is the big correction to start the bear market to end the the prolonged period of risk on that we've been talking about we see stocks in bear market territory we see all sorts of technology being slash left and right i mean every possible crypto currency every meme out there diamond hands you name it
1: yeah this feels like it but you know these things take a long time they take a long time to build up and they take a long time to fall apart and when they fall apart you sometimes see these little recovery rallies a, a day here where we're up 2%, 3%, and then the next day, it, got, it all gets washed out. So we're in this messy spin cycle right now, and investors hate this because there's really nothing to grab onto. I love to quote Charlie Bellello.
0: His stats on Twitter are, are amazing. Uh, 10-year Bitcoin returns, get this, 654,725% over 10 years, but over one year, it's 43%. So if you look at some of these stats, even even seven years, it's 13,000%. And the 57% drawdown in Bitcoin is its largest since 2018. People don't seem to realize that whether you're talking about the NASDAQ or double-digit gains in real estate, things can and do and should fall apart.
1: Yeah, they do. And if you looked at Charlie's stats you know, four weeks ago, five weeks ago, Bitcoin's returns over 10 years were a million percent. Find me another asset class ever. That has done that, but if you don't have a strong stomach, you can't you can't handle Bitcoin because Bitcoin loves these big dips, valleys, and peaks. So this is interesting. So you
0: know the S and P 500, the benchmark United States index, uh, is down 17 percent year to date. I guess the generally accepted nomenclature is if it's down 20 percent, that characterizes a bear market. 10 percent or more, that's a correction. Uh Charlie notes that the S&P 500 has returned 10% annualized since 1928 with an average intra-year drawdown which means every year within the year a drawdown a fall of about 16.3%. We're at 16.8%. He writes there's no upside without downside, no reward without risk and I, you know to quote who is it Jeffrey Gundlach the bond manager it's like you know capitalism without failure or bankruptcy is like Christianity without hell. It, it's not as compelling.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And and that's the thing. It doesn't feel like this has happened before. But this is actually not a bug in the system. This is a feature of the stock market. It feels a little bit more violent now given the highs we were riding. Remember, we were up 100% for over the past three years before we walked into 2022. We thought 2022 would be some smooth sailing. We're getting that washout right now. Could it go deeper? Absolutely. There's a lot of money in the market. There's a lot of fear in the market. But this is what happens in the stock market. Without this, you don't really have a stock market. You know, you have cotton candy and and diet uh, Dr Pepper all day long. So this is exactly what it, it happens. It doesn't feel good, but we got to get through it.
0: Caleb Silver, you've had El-Aryan, formerly of Pimco, on your show. Uh, he's a well-traveled, uh, you know, economist. He's uh, uh, well-quoted. Pimco is obviously the largest bond manager in the world for a while, and they quoted the new normal in, I think, 2009, coming out of the financial crisis, that we were going to have a standard of living adjustment, that companies were going to fail left and right, the stock market wasn't going to work for people. That obviously was pretty short lived The stock market roared back with much support from the Federal Reserve and very often zero interest rate policy. I want to ask you, what is normal interest rate policy? Here you have the Federal Reserve fighting 8% 8% plus inflation. You have the market freaked out about a 10-year treasury yield. You know The government's benchmark 10-year bond above 3%. I mean, we go back to the last period of inflation in the early 80s. You had bond yields in the mid-teens, really causing people to think twice about putting money in high ring or the stock market or risk assets. Why is 3% freaking people out?
1: Because we haven't felt these altitudes in a while. And you're right. You go back to the 80s or 70s, and it, you're talking about inflation in the double digits. You're talking about interest rates skyrocketing when Paul Volcker, the largest and most deeply voiced Fed chairman of all, raised interest rates uh, on a spree to cool the economy down. But that doesn't matter. Nobody cares about what happened 30, 40 years ago. They care about, they care about what's happened today. But you know what, Robin? The, the stock market usually does well when interest rates are rising, because that's generally a sign that the economy is in good shape. Not this time around. Right now, the economy is in rough shape. It's slowing down pretty aggressively because of inflation. So as the Fed raises rates, they're raising it in-the-face Of inflation. And they're raising it in the face of a lot of risk that was on the table that was put there because of those low interest rates and because of all that government money uh, that was doled out to folks amid the pandemic. So folks were feeling pretty lush in their 401ks. Their savings rates were pretty high. The the US savings rate hit a a high uh, several times during 2021. Mm. But that doesn't matter. Once you take the magic carpet uh, out from under them, it gets really slippery.
0: What about this Rorschach, Caleb, that Yes, you remember the the infamous business week death of equities cover in the late 1970s, how inflation is killing the stock market. Then we go on to have one of the best 10-15 year bull markets in history as the Federal Reserve then effectively killed inflation for a long while. But there's also this argument that stocks, actually ownership stakes in corporations with pricing power are hedges against inflation. How does that work? And and the same has been argued about real estate, about real assets.
1: Yeah, it's a great question because the stock market, you're betting on future growth. That's the very essence of it. You're betting on the future profitability of companies, which should do better than the rate of economic growth. So if you're buying stocks and you're buying into their growth, and you're taking advantage of a little bit of a trampoline there because they should outperform the growth of the U.S. economy. Right now, the U.S. economy is in slowdown mode because of high inflation again and because rates are going to rise. And the growth in the big stocks that everyone loved and held so dearly for the past 10 years, you know which ones I'm talking about. Apple, Amazon, Netflix, etc., that just doesn't look as strong, so it doesn't work this time around. And the thing about the stock market and the thing about looking at the uh, macroeconomic world and capital markets is it's... Things uh, sometimes do repeat, but most of the time they rhyme, not repeat, as uh, one sage once said. So it's always different, a little bit different given the circumstances, and that's what we're facing now. Slowing growth and that rocket ship that these companies were on is going to slow. Look at what's happening with Netflix. Look at what's happening with the social media companies. Engagement is slowing. Subscriber growth is slowing or going negative in some cases. Amazon posted its first quarterly loss in about nine years recently. So that's the kind of environment we're in right now.
0: Full disclosure: I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Caleb Silver. He is editor in chief of Investopedia. It's a dot dash brand focused on investing and in financial education. He previously was at CNN, where he was director of business news, and he was the executive producer of CNN Money. Uh, Caleb, what's going to happen to this class of kind of millennialish day traders, the the diamond hands people? We did an episode on them, the ones out there trading meme stocks like. AMC and GameStop, this this army of, of Reddit reading first-time investors out there who thought that they could kind of kill the smart money and, and big evil empire of hedge funds. There was a lot of time on people's hands. There was extra cash with the stimulus, fear of missing out, YOLO, whatever you want to call it. I mean, we talked about this group of people and certainly day traders got killed at the turn of the century with the dot-com bust. But are you seeing that happen in parallel here?
1: Absolutely. And and they've been awful quiet lately. Why? Because the returns just aren't there. The excitement's gone. The thrill is gone, to quote B.B. King, um, because things were just going up. Anything, any asset was just going up and to the right a year ago, a little bit more than a year ago, including digital currencies, including Bitcoin and, and the like, and including stocks like AMC and GameStop. But if you look at trading volume, and we look at that pretty often, it is really quiet out there because there is no trade to make. And when you look at what some of these companies are doing now, look at AMC right now. AMC's had a pretty decent business, although it was losing money amid the pandemic because we weren't going to the movies. What did it do? It took its cash from all these day traders and bought itself a gold mine in Nevada because (laughs) that seems to be the right thing to do when you can't get your business back on track. So companies are doing very strange things and that new investing class has been real quiet lately. And when you look at the average account size in Robinhood, it's like $500 and They're not trading very often at all. So they don't have a lot of money in the market. They don't have a lot of money in their accounts. And they're not trading effectively, which is really tough for these brokers, which make money on these transactions, especially options and crypto.
0: When we look at returns over the last year, time stamped into May 9th, crude oil is up 76%. uh, Energy stocks, the basket in the United States, the, the multinational basket, up 53%. Inflation is up 9%. Gold up 1%. The Standard and Poor's 500 index over the past 52 weeks is kind of flat. It's down 3%. The NASDAQ down 10%. U.S. bonds down about 10%. Institutional memory. People generally don't believe that they can lose money in bonds. But explain, as inflation goes up and you agreed to say a bond with a 1.5% yield and inflation shoots up and treasury yields are currently at around what? 3% 3% for the 10-year, your bond is worth less. If you have to sell it today, you take a pretty significant paper yeah, loss.
1: Yeah, it's, it's very rare that you see bonds and stocks moving in the same direction, but both feel super risky right now, not to even to mention the digital tokens and the currencies but bonds usually are a hedge against inflation but right now inflation seems out of control or at least it's going to be with us at these levels for a while so that's why you're seeing the weakness in the bond market investors don't want to hold anything right now and the question is where's the money gone because there was so much money in both the stock and the bond market over the past year year and a half where did it all go is it sitting in cash right now because that's not giving you any returns although your credit card companies and your banks want you to believe that they're giving you better CD rates. Where's all the money? Is it sitting on the sidelines? Is it waiting to come back into the market and buy the dip? We've had plenty of dips, Robin, but nobody seems to be buying them right now. We're buying them pretty aggressively. So that money is hiding somewhere. And we're going to find out where it is eventually when we get some more reports either out of the Fed, out of the out of the U.S. Treasury, uh, out of the Labor Department. We're going to see if money really wants to come back in or if people just want to tuck it away because they're worried we're going to be in for a long downturn here and they want cash on hand.
0: Is there any way to softly land a really hot economy and I know there's kind of a mixed metaphor inherent in that. When I look back to the example of 1982, you know, that was a pretty nasty recession. Paul Volcker the Fed chair then really had to crash the economy to snuff out inflation and then it grew from those embers.
1: Yeah, it's very tough to to have a soft landing because the Fed doesn't want to get into this position of that moral hazard. That's where we were back in 2008, 2009, where don't worry, the Fed will fix it just by lowering rates and putting more money into the system by either buying bonds or buying mortgage-backed assets. They did that two years ago. They rescued the economy from going into a very deep downturn at the very start of COVID. They can't keep doing that because then they look like they're catering to the capital markets. That's not their mandate, although we know they pay a lot of attention to it. So it's very hard to land this softly and no matter what, nobody, not everybody's going to be happy with the solution because we know rates are rising. The Fed wants to see interest rates at around 25 2.7% by the end of the year. That doesn't even sound very high. But, for investors who are used to zero to zero point two five percent, that sounds like they're climbing a huge mountain It's a
0: footnote in history the last time we had you know a fifty basis point hike. What was it in nineteen we you know we haven't had this since the Clinton administration when the Fed had to come in and hike by a chunky half a point increment.
1: Yeah, it's been a long time since we've had that and it worked for a period of time. We went on to a pretty incredible bull market that lasted quite a while. So when it raises rates, when the Fed raises rates a half a percent, it seems like it's a huge chunk. It's not given where we've come from, but everybody lives in the moment and investors are always looking for the next opportunity. And when you see rates rising in this staircase way through the rest of the year and probably well into 2023, investors, especially investors who've been betting on growth, don't want any part of it because they know that growth is going to be slowed down. It's like having huge chains around the necks of these massive growth companies that are just bracking up profits year after year. Their growth is slowing, the economy is slowing. And investor's bet on future growth is really fading right now because there's really nothing, again, to grab onto.
0: Now, to take it back to 1982 again, you know I'm a child of the 80s. You know I use any chance to invoke 1980s lyrics, as you mentioned. I just recently did the go-goes on TV, and I called it stagflations what I never wanted, right? Let's go back to 1982. It has been back in the day we used to say the 30-year bull market in bonds. It has been a 40-year bull market in bonds and that the Fed effectively killed inflation in the early 80s which was in the teens and the stock market and the bond markets have benefited. But you know the reports of the demise of the bond market have been overrated. Every year going back to the turn of the century people would say, "Whoop, the long Bond market bull is over. It's over. There's finally hell to pay. There's going to be inflation. You know we are on track now for the worst uh, year in history for the U.S. bond market with a loss of ten point two percent. The three percent decline for bonds in nineteen ninety four was the largest ever. I mean this would kind of blow that away. But game this out for me, Caleb. If the economy were to suddenly collapse, if God forbid another virulent COVID strain or stock market crash would have the Fed not obsessing about high inflation, but suddenly a free-falling economy.
1: Don't you think they'd
0: take Ritz back to zero and and we'd back in this codependency all over again?
1: Yeah, well, that's the thing. They don't want to get into this cycle of dependency where the Fed has to come rescue the economy every time it goes into a tailspin. But really, that's the world we live in right now. What else are they going to do? What else can they do to help calm the markets? So that's kind of it. They have to either become buyers again of government bonds or mortgage-backed assets. And right now, they're sellers. They're putting those back into the market. I mean, they they assembled
0: a $9 trillion balance sheet. I mean, people think about the headline of the Fed taking rates to zero. But then on top of that, in the pandemic, they went out and bought trillions of dollars of bonds to help real estate, first-time homeowners and real estate investors and the stock market and but the bond market.
1: Yeah, that's the thing. They do, they do they have to do that every single time? That doesn't really sound like the Fed's mandate, which is to manage monetary policy, keep inflation in check, and make sure the labor market's strong. The labor market's strong, it's just not strong enough because employers, small businesses, or even big businesses can't find enough workers. Now they're dealing with wage inflation. The worker finally has the upper hand for the first time in I don't know how many years, decades. So by just lowering rates every time something goes wrong and becoming a buyer of government bonds again, it puts them into that moral hazard where that's the expectation. But that just might be the way things are because there is no other solution right now. The the bull market we've been experiencing... For the past 20 odd years, I know there have been a couple of little mini bears in there, kind of cute little mini bears in there, except for the great financial crisis, is because the Fed has enabled these low interest rates and enabled investors to take a lot of risk and allowed companies to take a lot of risk when borrowing costs are zero or almost 0%. Why not?
0: I'm going to flog this stat forever, but I believe maybe a majority of the years of this century have been in emergency interest rate policy for the Federal Reserve. And that isn't yeah. normal. You have people out there arguing that, well, it is at a time when you can tolerate chronically low interest rates. There's a, a surplus of international savings. The Chinese want our bonds. There are boomers who are retiring and their bonds coming due and people want to park in bonds. And so the Fed can afford to be super dovish and super lax for too long. And there was that school of thought that we're just never going to really see early 80s vintage inflation ever again.
1: What happens when the biggest buyers of U.S. government bonds, and I'm talking about big pension funds, I'm talking about sovereign wealth funds, I'm talking about Japan, even China, when they stop buying U.S. bonds, when they look less attractive, that is going to be a very troubling time for the U.S. economy because we need buyers, right? And the Fed has been the buyer, the buyer of last resort. If the Fed was willing to buy, all those other buyers were willing to buy. If the Fed becomes a seller, Those other countries that are experiencing their own economic issues and their own economic slowdowns, they think twice about whether they want to own government bonds, especially U.S. government bonds. At the same time, and you quoted Mohamed el arian I'll quote him again, sometimes they're the cleanest dirty shirt in the hamper and that is the best place to park your assets because there is no other alternative that seems stable. That could still be the case, but there's other alternatives that are emerging all the time right now, and you got to worry when these big buyers stop buying or think that there's something else that's more attractive to put their money, that's going to be a really interesting dynamic for the US economy.
0: Can you explain crowding out, You know, to go back to econ 101 or finance or investing 101, that when the Fed is out there sweetening the pot on, uh, quote unquote, risk-free yields, why would you put the money to work in the stock market or in real estate or even in hiring people?
1: Yeah, that's exactly what's happened. That's a it's crowding out. It's what we call a crowded trade. So if the Fed is been has been buying bonds and keeping interest rates low, they are making it more attractive for investors to take on risk. When they take that away, all of a sudden you have to think twice about where you're going to put your money, where you're going to make that trade, and all the money goes to the usually the same place. You've you talked about the the rally in energy prices and the rally in energy stocks. That's kind of been where the money is because we're in a commodity bull market right now. So that's the crowded trade. Is that gonna is that gonna last for a long time? We have gas prices again at record highs on average across the country. We have oil prices north of a hundred and five dollars a barrel. That's been the crowded trade. When does that disappear? Well, it disappears when that demand disappears, but we haven't seen that quite yet.
0: Uh talk to me about that. You know, your ears were burning. Gas prices, that's a daily print that everybody sees on the boulevard, on the avenue. Right now it's kind of emblazoned, I could tell you here in Central Virginia at four dollars and twenty five cents. A gallon, uh, indicative of, you know, uh, again, triple digit crude oil, the war premium with uh, Russia and Ukraine. You have very icy relations between uh, the Biden administration and Saudi Arabia, which used to be able to pry open the spigots and kind of rescue us. This unfortunate dependency persists in spite of what we experienced in 2008, in spite of what we experienced during the hostage crisis or the early 70s. The price of oil can still take the U.S. economy hostage.
1: Absolutely, because it is the one thing we do every week, whether you're a small business owner and you're filling up your fleet of vans to make deliveries, or whether you own a big multinational company that has to... You know, higher freight to transport goods, or whether you're just a consumer filling up the gas tank once or twice a week, you feel that. You also feel it at the grocery store. I, th- I always find it interesting that the Fed focuses on core inflation, which strips out energy and food prices. Guess what? Those are the things we spend money on every single week. So I don't know why we strip those out. We feel those, and when consumers feel those, and all of a sudden a fill-up costs $60 instead of $35, you're going to cut back in other places. Where are you going to cut back? You're going to cut back in discretionary spending. That means travel. That means clothes that you don't necessarily need that you may have wanted. That means that the services part of the economy, which employs so many people. So the economy is like, a, like the human body. You twist your ankle, you start limping around, then your back starts to hurt after a while. Then you start making adjustments because your back starts to hurt, and then your hip hurts after a while. So you can't fix one part of the economy or address one part of the economic problem without it affecting another part. It's all connected, as they say on the wire.
0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to Investopedia's Caleb Silver. Do stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, rave about us, tell your mom about us, and of course, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, The Works at Full D Radio. If you're just joining us, my guest is Caleb Silver. He is editor-in-chief of Investopedia and Past Lives. He was uh, at CNN, where he ran Business News, he was senior producer for The Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer, and executive producer of CNNMoney.com. There is this quote uh, that is ascri- ascribed to you uh, from Caleb Silver. Charlie Munger, who runs Berkshire Hathaway with Warren Buffett, you said, Once told you that he has no patience in life for people who don't have the capacity to change. I think about this as an investor and as an editor every day. The world changes, and history rarely repeats itself in investing in finance realms. Every situation and era is unique, and we need to be able to adapt as investors if we want to realize our goals. It's hard, isn't it? Because you want to look back at benchmarks, you want to be able to rely on that You know, fabled 9.5% a year
1: average return of the stock market if I leave it there and let dividends reinvest. But there is no guarantee. No, there is no guarantee. And I just saw Charlie Munger, God bless him, 98 years young with Warren Buffett, 91 years young at the uh, Berkshire Hathaway shareholder meeting. They're still talking the same book. Now, they've done very well. They're ultra billionaires right now. But why do I think about that quote? Because you have to be able to have the capacity to change. And it's so hard because we are animals. We have animal spirits that are trying to run our minds and tell us no things are going to get back together things are going to get better again we know the stock market's going to rally we're going to be off to the races anytime soon or i'd love that stock i don't want to let go of it you have to lose the emotional attachment and calm your animal spirits as an investor otherwise you're never going to be able to really build wealth over the long term and it's very hard when your money has been working in growth stocks when you've owned all the big giants and they've been delivering great returns for you over the years and you're facing this period like we are now where it just doesn't look as bright going forward. You have to move your money to other places. You have to make those adjustments. It's hard to do that. One, it takes that emotional strength to be able to do it. And also, you need to make the time to do it. Most retail investors, have their money passively invested in a 401k or a SEP account or an IRA. They don't want to make moves. They don't even know where their money is. But if you're not rebalancing every quarter or at least twice a year and you're not really surveying what's worked for you and what's not and what the future looks like, you're never going to be able to take advantage when the market makes its moves like it did in the past six months. So case in point,
0: you try telling an investor right now who's all starry eyed about the last decade and Tesla and Netflix and growth and Bitcoin and you know NFTs. We didn't even get into the esoterica. You try sitting that investor down and saying, okay, Now it's time to focus on, let's say, emerging markets, which haven't done anything over 15 years, or value, or international value. It's like telling a a 10-year-old to drink milk and stay in school and do homework.
1: Yeah. Nobody likes to hear that. But the thing is, there's always a bull market somewhere. So right now, it happens to be in commodities. Now, you may not be that type of investor that wants to invest in fossil fuel companies or in mining companies, and I totally get that. I feel that way as well. But you got to pay attention to what markets are working right now. So the US stock market is doing terribly right now. Guess what markets are doing well? Those that have a heavy concentration of energy and mining companies and that could be canada it's doing a little bit better than the us brazil which is the economy in brazil is in terrible shape the stock market's in great shape the common denominator with the markets the global markets that are doing well right now they have a very low concentration of growth and tech they have a very high concentration of value they have a very high concentration of commodities so that's where the bull market is right now will that how long will that last we're gonna see because there seems to be unlimited demand right now we keep you know, drilling for more oil, we keep building new steel plants, and that seems to be the way things are going to go for the next few years. As an investor, you have to say to yourself, maybe I don't want to own the dirty asset, so to speak, but I do want to participate in the rally and get out of this tailspin of growth stocks, which can't seem to find their footing right now. You have to be able to make those tough decisions. You have to have the capacity to change, and it's so hard because our animal spirits and our emotional attachment to the stocks that have delivered so such great returns for us is so deep and strong. It's very hard to break that. Well, let me ask
0: you, can you build a better mousetrap than the standard and poor's five hundred index? I'm quoting the late Jack Bogle, famously investor inventor of the modern day index fund, you know, synonymous with Vanguard, which has trillions and trillions in assets that you don't have to invest more than, say, the S&P 500. You see, famously, it derives more than half of its revenue, these benchmark United States multinationals, from abroad. You get the benefit of US liquidity and transparency. You don't have to get exotic and go and buy an emerging markets index or a developed market index. And that's certainly been advantageous over the last 15 years, while emerging markets have had their loss decade and a half. But people forget that the United States had its lost decade to start this century when emerging markets were roaring. And so there is a zigzag factor.
1: Yeah. The S&P 500 gives you that exposure, but when you look at the concentration, since it's a market-weighted index, and that means it's heavily tilted towards market caps, the company with large market caps, and you know which ones they are, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Tesla, it's about 20%, 22% technology and growth. 2% of it is oil and energy stocks, but that's been the best performing uh, part of the market right now. So yes, the S&P 500 gives you that broad exposure, but it's still heavily weighted like a seesaw towards the big growth stocks that were the story for the past 10 to 15 years. That's not necessarily going to be the story going forward. Now, is Apple going to absolutely crash? Absolutely not. Apple makes great products. It's a multi-trillion dollar company. It's going to do well, but it doesn't have the growth propellers that it had in the past. So you have to look at where that is. And if you can't get that, Through the S&P 500, because the concentration is so heavily leaned towards technology, you have to look at other indexes where you can possibly do better. Some of those are, again, oil and energy indexes, if you have the stomach for it, or if you have the capacity or the consciousness to be able to invest in those companies, but you can also look outside the U.S. to emerging markets that are doing well right now, like the ones that I mentioned.
0: There's a headline in Fortune, Housing Bubble 2.0, Regional Housing Markets Are Beginning to Look Like They Did in 2007. I think that homeowners who were lucky enough to have homes and were padding them up with additions and everything are counting their blessings, but there's a lot of consternation and anger by first-time homebuyers are being priced out. So generationally, you're going to have equity pass on from the haves to their children, much more, I think $6 trillion in added home equity. But um, a a lot of people annoyed out there, over the past two years, U.S. home prices are up 34%, including a 20% jump over the past 12 months. That 12-month hike is more than four times greater than the historic annual average posted since 1987. It is also well above the largest 12-month price jump, 15%, posted in the years leading up to the 2008 financial crisis. Again, history
1: rhymes, but should we
0: worry? Should we be worried about some sort of 2007-2008
1: type blowup? Well, as as mortgage rates rise, right, as interest rates rise, especially those adjustables, it could really sting those first time home buyers who were getting a great deal when interest rates were down in the two percent range, two and a half percent range. People were buying homes like crazy a couple of years ago if they had the money. But Robin, that speaks to the K-shaped recovery. And this happened in 2008 and 2009. It happened in the last recession we had, it big recession we had in the 80s, when if you were doing well, if you had equity, if you owned a home, you did very well in the recovery. If you didn't, you're in worse shape than you were before. So income inequality only gets stretched further in crises like this because you had to have the means to buy that house even when rates were 2.5%. Guess who was buying a lot of those houses? Rich people who already owned homes, corporate corporations the blackstones of the world were scooping up real estate assets wherever they could because they recognized the fact that rates were so low they were never going to see them that low again so if you were priced out back then you're going to be priced out for quite a while if you bought in and mortgage rates and interest rates are rising and you have those adjustable rates you're going to feel that you may get stung and, and have to default now i don't think we're anywhere close to where we were in 2008 2009 but we do know that that bi- that brief period of time when mortgage rates were low and there was a lot of housing availability amid the dark days of the pandemic, if you weren't proactive then, it's going to be very hard for you to get into the housing market now. And that just continues that cycle of income inequality that the United States is famous for, where if you have it, you've done great. If you never had it to begin with, you're even in worse shape than you were before.
0: Yeah. Moody's Analytics own research, uh, Fortune Notes, finds 96% of housing markets are overvalued. I mean, you hear these horror stories in Miami where people are getting their rents doubled, their New Yorkers coming in, because there has been this whole work from home, remote work renaissance. And this is kind of causing a backlash against tech bro and crypto carpetbaggers coming in from overpriced overtaxed markets such as California and New York to places such as Austin, Texas, which has seen prices soar, Miami, Florida, where I am from, where, where people are just lamenting the bouts of you know local microinflation you can't afford everything any any you know fabulous restaurant in Manhattan is opening a Miami outpost that you wonder if there is underlying financial strength from the local population to sustain this kind of inflation
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And I think there isn't, by and large. And when you look at housing in the United States right now, housing prices, you mentioned, screaming high right now, but there's a very limited availability. The availability is in homes priced $500,000 or higher in the major cities across the country. Who's, Who's going to be able to access those? Rich people who probably already own homes and who can borrow against it, people who have a lot of equity in their homes or have a lot of money in the stock market or in the bank. So you have a very limited supply. It's very expensive right now. Rates keep rising and that's the cycle we're going to be in for quite a while because You can't build homes fast enough uh, at a low enough price to attract those lower-income people into the market, and they're going to get outbid by folks that already have a lot of money and can make a deal on the spot in cash.
0: Close us out, Caleb, in the four or five minutes we have left with you. There always seems to be a course correction. If commodities shoot up in price – you see production try to uh, equilibrate and and meet that demand. You know if oil is at triple digits, you have the drillers wanting to go out there and extract the stuff from the planet, but similarly, if it plummets like you saw. In the first few days of the pandemic, you have companies and nations abandoning and mothballing projects left and right, and you have all of these tankers floating in the high seas. They can't even give their oil away. I think this has kind of been a two-year micro lesson in mean reversion, which can actually be mean. It can, it can be whiplashing.
1: It can hurt both ways. Yeah, mean reversion is one of our fam- favorite terms here at Investopedia and you do have to have that perspective, Robin, because it seems like things are moving so much faster than they used to in the past. We had that little mini bear market uh, at the very onset of the pandemic and then we had a raging bull market that lasted for a good year and a half. We had oil prices going negative. Now we had oil prices, you know, topping out at $130 right. a barrel a few months ago. So These things move in cycles, things revert, assets revert to the mean, we are in this extreme period right now where we go too fast or too slow and there's not a lot of middle ground for that 60-40 investor, 60% stocks, 40% bonds to really perform well in their portfolios. P.S. that trade is dead. So I've given you a lot of bad news and a lot of warnings out there. At the same time, things do change, right? So we've gone way to the extreme right now where there's a lot of fear in the market, there's a lot of anxiety, Inflation is at you know 8% plus and it's eventually gonna recede but it's gonna take time. The question is do investors have the patience for that to come back and be able to reset their portfolios and rebuild because that is the key to building wealth. So yes, there's a lot of negative headlines out there. It's very tough to find some good news. That said, these are the periods where the darkest period is usually right before the light. I'm not saying it's gonna turn right away but eventually it will and as an investor and I don't care if you're 20 years old 40 years old or 60 years old, you have to have the patience and the wherewithal to make it through these periods of darkness and make it through these periods of bear markets or or intense volatility because the other side usually produces returns. So if you jump out because you can't handle it, you can't handle the volatility, then you never belonged in the stock market. You never you were never meant to be an investor to begin with. But if you can hang in there, the best days in the stock market, the best days for returns are usually in market turmoil like this. So I'm not saying we're going to bounce out of this next week, but you have to stick with it because you're going to if you miss the best performing days in the stock market and these usually happen where we're in this terrible bottom period, it's very hard to get those returns. We talked about those assets that are down 50%, 70%. When a stock falls 50% and takes 100% return to get it back to par, you got to look for other areas to invest your money because there is no other alternative, better alternative to building wealth and investing. And even though it looks really challenging right now, you have to be able to, to stick with it and have a plan to make it through these tough times. And I think we will, and I'm looking forward to it. I'm not jumping out of the market and I'm as scared as anyone right now but you have to be able to stick with it and be able to have that capacity, again, to make those changes in your portfolio and in your investment outlook if you want to take advantage of the good times.
0: Caleb Silver, editor-in-chief of Investopedia, now as, a, as an honorary uh, hat-trick full disclosure guest, you've been on three times. You are eligible for a salmon Reuben at the Continental West Hampton in Richmond, Virginia, which I know you coveted because you came through with your family and enjoyed. So on me the next time you are in town.
1: I will be there this weekend if that's the case, Robin, because I love that and I love seeing you and I always enjoy being on Full Disclosure.
0: My pleasure. Come on again. Full Disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle fulldradio. And please get in touch to carry Full Disclosure on your air. If you are just joining us, we were discussing the implications of the market swoon amid the Fed's fight against inflation. The concurrent commodities boom, which has made oil, minerals, and recyclables more valuable, had me thinking back to my 2019 interview with waste guru Adam Minter. He authored the book Junkyard Planet Travels in the Billion Dollar Trash Trade. Joining me from Kuala Lumpur all the way over the equator in Malaysia is Adam Minter, author of the forthcoming book Secondhand Travels in the New Global Garage Sale. I'm also a huge fan of his first book, Junkyard Planet. Uh, you could think of Adam as a thinking man's uh, garbage man. He likes to dumpster dive and landfill dive, and in this case, uh, was, was looking at the world's predilections for disposals and hoardings across various cultures. How are you, sir?
2: I'm great. Thanks for having me on.
0: Love having you on. I mean, I've been reading your stuff about plastic. That gets hits on Bloomberg Opinion so much. And there was a sure. an NPR piece this morning on um, some guy that is going through the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, and he actually called in on a sat phone. It seems like that is the, I wouldn't dare call it the kind of the charismatic furry creature of this waste crisis right now, but everybody seems to be talking about plastic and the plastic straw. The plastic straw is suddenly the bête noire of, of everybody out there.
2: Yeah, I think so. And I think you're, uh, the touch point of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is, is the correct one. I mean, just sort of in my business, the area I cover, um, we all, uh, you know, meaning uh, the people, the handful of people who, who cover these things, really felt a surge in interest when the Great Pacific Garbage Patch became something that emerged onto sort of mainstream consciousness. And, you know, it took a few years for plastic straws to get connected to that, but there's definitely been sort sort of a congruence of factors that have brought this all together and created this waste crisis, which, you know, I'm not sure we're necessarily facing a waste crisis, but I think what we're probably facing is is greater public consciousness of the issue surrounding waste. Adam, why
0: did it take so long? It seems like this is a design flaw for manufacturers. I mean, you you go back to The Graduate and the famous, you know, Dustin Hoffman gets accosted in plastics. and. And you think about all of the plastics that were churned out, the billions and billions and billions of tons of it, and just the tiny little sliver that were actually truly recycled. I mean, it it seems like an enormous loophole that manufacturers were able to exploit, the likes of Unilever and Procter & Gamble and everybody for years. It's like, it's again, private profits and then socialized picking up of the tab.
2: Yeah, I I think uh, that your observations are correct. I think sort of the catalyst really was the development of economies in Asia, led by China, but, you know, followed most recently, of course, by economies in Southeast Asia, you know, and as economies develop, especially in this modern era, consumers tend to adopt, you know, the disposable items that we have adopted in developed countries. But, you know, unlike, say, you know, somebody who's living in New York City, or Minneapolis, there really isn't much waste infrastructure there, you know, in Southeast Asia, I'm in Malaysia, you know, and in the office building where I'm at, it it doesn't have regular, you know, garbage pickups, much less recycling. And so, you know, initially that may not have seemed like much of a problem because the consumption levels were really low. But over the last 10 years in particular, the consumption levels have gotten so high and you start seeing these large waste dumps on the outskirts of cities like Beijing and Shanghai or, you know, or or down here outside of Kuala Lumpur. And that, those dumps um, generally, which are built up from the consumption in these economies are contributing to this ocean plastics problem. And I think that's really what has led us to this moment, is it? it really is the rise of a consumer class in developing countries. And now, instead of having one billion consumers, middle-class consumers, you know, the world has, you know, three or four billion.
0: Yeah, and so we are all connected. The analysis is something on the effect of five to eight rivers, predominantly in Asia, contribute to the preponderance of this problem. I mean, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, between Hawaii and California gets all of the attention but it's it's not difficult to go to a beach on the eastern seaboard and find ocean debris from plastic debris from a, a world away
2: yeah, that's, that's exactly that's exactly right. Um, but, you know, and, and, and you, it's something you really feel when you are in developing Asia. And, and for this last book, I spent time in, in Africa as well, developing Africa, is you'll you'll see, you know, in every town, there will just be these informal dumps. And these dumps are often built, uh, you know, informally beside rivers, and those rivers become the conduit to which these plastics make their way into the ocean. You know, and, and that's very much the case in, in Asia. And in fact, The studies have been done that the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, you know, the majority of of the material flowing into it is coming out of these developing parts of Asia, in particular China, which is the greatest contributor to it. Um, And it's just because they've built, you know, these cities and these consumer classes, but the the waste dumps and the waste management just hasn't kept up. And because of that, you see it flowing into those into these nether regions where it, it doesn't belong.
0: Adam, do you believe that it has become truly an issue of urgency for the the multinationals in that, especially in the age of Instagram and social media, that any of their products can kind of be tagged and they can be shamed for not being stewards of the complete cycle? I mean, you see the chairman of SC Johnson going out there and actually posing with these things and saying, we need to do it. I'm still getting the impression that it's kind of out of sight, out of mind, and they're not going to take responsibility for the entire life cycle of their products, kind of from, from production from the derivatives from oil to ultimate recycling, responsible disposal or incineration
2: of it. I think you're right on that. I think from their perspective, this is a... public relations crisis you know in developed countries which are which are paying attention to it far more than it's being paid attention to in in developing regions and 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 the proof really is the kinds of products that you see um still being distributed you know throughout developing countries oftentimes by you know these multinationals which are making you know very loud noises you know about being sustainable companies and, and addressing these issues in in developed countries you know I can think uh if you you know in Indonesia for example you'll see uh, water you know bottled water only it's not distributed in bottles which are plastic bottles which are relatively easy to recycle it's distributed in plastic bags you know and those plastic bags are torn open and and tossed on the ground and so there's no disposal uh, you know solution for them or uh, you know I've heard a number of environmental activists in Indonesia talk about plastic cups of water this is something that you know you wouldn't see distributed in the United States or in Germany Uh, the public you know has become more sustainably minded, you know, would positively riot over these things in the current climate. But in Indonesia, in particular, it's perfectly acceptable to say hold a wedding where you're distributing these disposable plastic cups of water, um, which are made by multinationals, to to your guests. And so, uh, until you see issues like that addressed more directly by the multinationals, I don't think you you can say that they're uh, they're viewing it as a crisis. And so, I think that is a problem. And 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 I. I think we're still some time off from that being addressed correctly
0: and adam before we, we get into your book secondhand forthcoming this year travels in the new global garage so i do want to walk out on plastic a bit more because it's it's mm-hmm. again it's pulling everybody in you write a column about the plastic straw and it goes crazy everywhere like you're, right. you know contrarian piece like it's it's a nice start but it's really not going to make a difference when you look at the lot of of um you know fishing related waste and nets and buoys and all the other things that we see in the ocean that then break down into microplastics that this is true you know it's it's a symbolic thing but it's truly 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 a tip of the the trashberg, if you will. Right. I'm wondering why innovation has been so slow with this. For, for starters, plastic itself. I mean, the big changing event last year, in 2018, was China, which was the buyer of size of all of of the world's plastic because the shipping containers can go back full, and there was smaller incremental costs in them taking it on. China suddenly says we don't want it, and then all these other economies in that region in the South China Sea follow on and saying, don't give it to us either, right? Mm-hmm. They, they clearly can't make an economic case for incinerating this stuff and maybe recapturing some of the, the BTUs and the hydrocarbons that are embedded in it. And this has started a huge backlog back into the United States where you see right. constant coverage of municipalities that are just saying, you know what? We're no longer doing recycling. It was a loss leader beforehand and now it's just prohibitively expensive. So why hasn't somebody come out and say, you know, for example, we can, we can use some of this stuff as a feedstock into something. There's so much of it. It's free. People want to give it away. Why hasn't that happened or what will it take for that to happen?
2: Right. Well, I think you, you, you've you just hinted at it, and that is that there there really hasn't been a market incentive to do it. I mean, most people, I think, at least in developed countries, tend to think of recycling as a environmental imperative. Um, but the reality is, is that uh, recycling, for it to work, tends to have to have economic incentives. Otherwise, nobody's going to do it. Nobody is going to sort through your trash and make it into new stuff unless they're paid to do it. And for a very long time, uh, there was simply were good enough economic incentives that, you know, the stuff disappeared. Um, Some of it disappeared in the sense that it was recycled in developing countries like China, which, you know, used it. I was in those recycling factories, some of which were deplorable, but, you know, some of that plastic could be used in automobile parts and and electronics and other kinds of uh, things, and and others were just burnt. Um, With China cutting off its market, there simply wasn't enough demand for manufacturers in Southeast Asia. Asia to use it, and you combine, you know, and so as a result, you have this surplus. Then you turn it around, and you have a public that's angry about it. Suddenly, you have um, your economic incentive because you there are recyclers and there are companies that make these products that want to, at a minimum, blunt the public outrage. And so we're starting to see real innovation in this sector, but it's going to take time. I always, uh, when I talk about innovation in the recycling sector, I always uh, refer people back to the automobile. Most people don't think of the disposal of automobiles as an environmental problem but in the 1960s and 70s it was a you know there were so many abandoned cars in the United States that both Presidents Johnson and Nixon actually cited them as major environmental problems but it took about 30 years for the solution the actual technologies to recycle those automobiles to emerge you know I think we're all hopeful that uh, things will proceed more quickly with plastics and I, I believe they will um, and for many of the same reasons just the public is outraged by it and so that creates the market incentive to do it. And so I'm I'm optimistic over the next five years we're going to see some solutions to this. You
0: know, it's interesting. I talk about charismatic species beforehand, and they, they say that that's the, the opportunity and the, the lament when you look at the Endangered Species Act. The more charismatic the animal is, the better chance it has of you ginning up protection and right. running up advertising campaigns. There was that sea turtle that had this plastic straw Pride from its nose ever so painfully. Um, and that, that was filmed and put all over social media. And that seems to have sounded the death knell for the plastic straw kind of as, as not being taboo. You and your analysis says, even if we were to buy the questionable claim that Americans use 500 million plastic straws per day, for example, which sounds awful, even if all of these straws were suddenly washed into the sea, you wrote, they'd account for only about 0.03% of the 8 million metric tons of plastics estimated to enter the oceans in a given year. By way of contrast, you say a recent survey by Ocean Cleanup, a group developing technologies to reduce ocean plastic, says that, you know, in the Great Pacific garbage patch, in the garbage patch that it did an aerial analysis of, at least 46% of plastic by weight in that garbage patch comes from a single product, fishing nets other fishing gear makes up a good chunk of the rest so if anything that should be the target if we wanted to be you know getting most bang for your outrage Right, it should be the fishing industry, and you have noticed that in the past consumers have been efficacious in kind of dolphin-free tuna with the fishing industry.
2: Exactly, but you know these are the hard problems, but they're also the problems that get at sort of the structural issues in consumption, because ultimately waste and consumption are tied together, and the supply chains that supply our consumption. You know, in the case of the you know the dolphin, uh, the dolphin-free tuna, it was you know people want to eat tuna, that was uh, you know a as a byproduct of that you have dolphins get captured. And so people had to address entirely how, you know, tuna was captured. And again, I think in some sense you you wanna say that, you know, the same sort of effort is going to have to be concentrated on fixing this ghost gear, which is what the problem of, you know, nets uh, floating around in the ocean is, is you're, you're going to have to fundamentally change how companies go about catching the seafood that we all consume. And that's going to require consumer demands, but it's also going to require, you know, changes in how we consume, um, changes perhaps in how much we pay. And those are the hard uh, issues to address, but they're also the ones that can make the biggest impact.
0: That was a flashback to my 2019 talk with waste guru Adam Minter, author of Junkyard Planet, Travels in the Billion-Dollar Trash Trade. You can catch the entire episode, Junketeer, on your favorite podcatcher. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. Hello to our broadcast listeners on WVTF Radio IQ across the great state of Virginia, up in northern Virginia and much of D.C. on WERA. We are in North Carolina on WPVM and out west on KPPQ. Please message me to run full disclosure on your air. My DMs are open. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening and back with you next week.